0: Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. We finally finished looking at God's encounter with Moses at the burning bush, and we see tonight the follow up to that how Moses went ahead and returned to Egypt in obedience to the call of God. So Exodus chapter 4, starting at verse 18. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who are dead who sought your life. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at his feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us. To understand this text give us ears to hear open our minds to understand the scriptures help us to love your word and to submit to it because it is your word to us father be with my mouth help me to speak boldly and powerfully with demonstration of the Holy Spirit to build up your people and to feed them richly on the spiritual food of your word Thank you that you condescend to come and speak to us through human lips. Give us the grace to listen. Free us from distraction, we ask. Give us focus and love for what we hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, After one scene that took up a chapter and a half, our text tonight presents about four scenes in the space of seven or eight verses. Boom, boom. We just move right along. As though to say, when God says go, Moses goes. And a verse of this and a verse of that, two or three verses at a stretch, tell us how Moses went. At the heart of these verses, though, is a deeply troubling theological claim. I'm not talking about the claim of Election. God saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. That's troubling enough. But much more troubling than God hardening Pharaoh's heart is what comes next. I will kill your son, your firstborn. God threatens death to Pharaoh's firstborn. There's one uh, rank, unbelieving commentator from the University of San Diego, puts it in his commentary. This is more reminiscent of Babylonian law than of the spirit of the Bible. So he says about the threat against Pharaoh's firstborn. But even that is not the troubling theological claim because the real troubling claim comes in the next verses, 24 through 26, the claim that God will kill even Moses unless Something is done to Moses' son, unless Moses' son is circumcised. The theme is the death of the firstborn. Not as an accident, not as an afterthought, but at the heart of everything that's going on. And of course, this theme of the death of the firstborn is prominent not only in Exodus, but throughout the Bible. Many Christian traditions have found a way to dispense with predestination, found a way to soften the killing of Pharaoh's son, but no Christian can get rid of the death of Jesus Christ and remain Christian. This claim that the benefits only flow when the firstborn is cut off, that, my friends, is the troubling claim in these verses. It may seem like a quick whirlwind tour of Moses trip back to Egypt and so it is. But as with our morning text, there is much gospel meat here for hungry saints. So Moses goes and returns to Jethro, verse 18. Now if you remember your ancient Near Eastern geography, your modern Near Eastern geography, you have Egypt they're in the top corner of Africa. And Egypt has that little hook hanging over its side into the Gulf, uh, the Red Sea. That's the Sinai Peninsula. And bordering that little hook is the country of Israel. On the other side of Israel is the modern nation of Jordan. Well, it's within Jordan that one finds the land of Midian, where Moses had been living for the last 40-odd years. Midian is found there on the eastern shore of the Gulf of Aqaba. You probably have a map in the back of your Bible if you want to refresh your memory. So Moses was at Mount Sinai, which is roughly halfway between Midian and Egypt. Egypt's here, Sinai's here, Midian is here. Moses has led his flock all the way to the mountain of God. God tells him, you're going to Egypt. So Moses promptly turns around and goes the other way. He has to return the flock. It's not his flock. He can't take it to Egypt. His family is back in Midian. He needs them. So he goes back meets with his father-in-law, and requests permission to return to Egypt. His father-in-law, probably much to Moses' dismay, says, sure, go ahead. Well, Moses lingers. Moses lingers in Midian to the point where, verse 19, God says to Moses in Midian, go, return to Egypt. Moses, we've been over this a few times. Yes, you respected your human relationships. Yes, you returned the flock. Yes, you came back to your father-in-law and said, can I go to Egypt? And of course, Moses, in asked, making that request, used the same vocabulary from chapter 2. He wanted to go and look on their burdens. And here he wants to go and look on whether they're still alive. And right? he had reason to wonder whether his family was still alive. Forty years is a long time. To be out of communication with one's family. Moses gets this word from God. Go back. And we like to emphasize the tough love aspect of God. And that's here in these verses. Go. Moses. Get out there. But God offers him reassurance too. He doesn't just say go. He offers him this promise. All the men are dead who sought your life. Pharaoh sought your life, Moses, he's gone. That warrant has been shuffled into a file with a hieroglyph for cold case on it for a long, long time now. Nothing to be afraid of, of course, what God does not tell him. Verse 19 says the men who sought your life are dead. Verse 24 tells us that the Lord sought Moses' life. Moses, you don't have to worry about them, you need to worry about me. So God will eventually reveal to him, but God tells him, reassures him, goes out of his way to tell him it's okay, it's safe. God is tough, but he's also the tender father that we know and love, who offers reassurance to his children. He addresses our fears because that's who he is. You and I don't need to be tougher than the Almighty. It's okay to speak to people's fears. So God does that. So Moses steps out in faith. Verse 20, he took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Once again, the scene is almost pitiful in its rustic grandeur. Family of four with a donkey. This is not a well-off family. This is a family of four driving a 98 Corolla. Ouch. Moses, you've worked 40 years. What do you have to show for it? A donkey. The boys didn't even get their own donkeys. One donkey. And even in that regard, Moses is going from Midian, where he at least had enough to live on, back to Egypt where his people are slaves and where he might have to work without wages at 80 years old. Moses was not in the business of delivering God's people for the money. The salary doesn't appear. What he made is nowhere stated in the Pentateuch. But at least at this point, he didn't own his own flock didn't have much in the way of animals, goes back with a single donkey. Is money in the driver's seat of your life? And if Moses had been interested in money, he would never have gone to Midian, never have stayed in Midian. He would have returned to the Egyptian court where there was plenty of money. But he was more interested in serving God than in being rich. And so must we be. But besides the donkey, he did have one other asset. The rod of God in his hand. The miracle-working power sufficient to free his enslaved people from bondage to Pharaoh. The rod that would split the Red Sea, turn the Nile into blood, call down frogs and flies, Moses had that in his hand. And we can say, oh, I wish I had that access to that kind of power. You do. You have the power of God for everything you need it for. If you need the ability to cross the Red Sea, God will give it to you. But you have the power to fight sin. The power to be holy. The power to obey Christ. The power to grow in faith. The power to speak the truth to your children and disciple them the power to exercise discernment in your vocation to serve God faithfully there Moses had this tool for his calling you have the tools to serve God in your calling God provides Maybe all Moses only had a donkey but he also had this rod but as they're going back God comes to Moses with a slightly more explicit warning he already said Pharaoh won't let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand now he says it in so many words Pharaoh will not let the people go why not because I will harden his heart Now this is the point where Presumably, if Sapporo weren't there, right, Moses would want to argue with God again. You and I would certainly want to argue with God. God, why do you have to harden his heart? Couldn't you soften his heart so that he will let us go easily? So when I come in and say, let my people go, Pharaoh says, okay, go. Doesn't matter to me. What is involved with God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Well, 20 times the text of Exodus tells us about Pharaoh's hard heart. Ten of those times, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Ten of those times, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart or Pharaoh's heart was hardened. There's all kinds of considerations swirling around this. Psychologically speaking, if you take somebody with a naturally strong will and you train him in the ways of being an all-powerful autocrat for decades and then you force the issue with him and say, you will let the people go, and he says, no, I won't. And that's exactly what God does. He forces the issue with Pharaoh after Pharaoh has been used to command for decades. Well, it doesn't take a psychology degree to predict That there's going to be a showdown. That Pharaoh is going to harden his heart. And refuse to back down. And refuse to let the people go. But the text, of course, goes beyond that. The text doesn't mean simply that God will harden Pharaoh's heart in the sense that God will throw down an ultimatum. And anybody could predict that the ultimatum, the showdown, is going to make Pharaoh even more hard-hearted. That's true. But there's more to it than that. By I will harden Pharaoh's heart, God means I will hand Pharaoh over to the condition that he loves of being hard-hearted. In other words, being hard-hearted is a sin. God will not sin. God will not force Pharaoh to sin, but God will punish Pharaoh by handing him over to sin. What's the difference? Pharaoh was given up to sin by God Almighty in a way that Pharaoh did not want to resist and could not resist. Had Pharaoh wanted to resist this hardening, of course, maybe he could have. We simply don't know. But if he had wanted to resist it, then his heart would not have been hard. Because his heart was hard, he wanted it to be hard. That is, because he had given himself over to sin, he desired sin. And when God gave him over to sin, that's exactly what Pharaoh wanted. If Pharaoh had been in the habit of praying, he would have said, God, give me a hard heart to stand against you in your decrees. All of us have had those moments when we're actively sinning and some consideration comes to mind and we say, wait, I need to stop sinning. What I'm doing in this moment is wrong. What I'm saying is wrong. What I'm thinking is wrong. What my hands are accomplishing, that's wrong. And in the moment you have a choice to soften your heart and to stop doing what you're doing or to harden your heart and to double down on what you're doing well pharaoh always chose to harden his heart the text again goes beyond saying that pharaoh hardened his heart that's true god also hardened pharaoh's heart god says it to moses i myself i even i god emphasizes the i here he uses the pronoun as well as the verb that's marked with the first person It's a double I. I, even I, will harden Pharaoh's heart. Why does God do this? Why doesn't God soften Pharaoh's heart? Because that's how God deals with the problem of evil. God routinely forces the issue with sin. That is, the drama is part of the point. We all know that if you take somebody tough and strong-willed like Pharaoh and insist on creating a showdown with that person, you're going to get a lot of drama. God insisted on having the showdown because the same reason he allows create evil in his creation at all. God wants to show us more about himself and we learn more about him when we see him fighting evil, having a showdown with evildoers, than we would if he simply changed the hearts of every evildoer so that they instantly stopped and started doing good whenever anybody confronted them about it. If everyone who was doing evil instantly changed as soon as they were called out, we wouldn't see God fighting evil in this world. The book of Exodus is about the knowledge of God. God had to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he could show himself standing up for his people. We like to say, but God what about the human cost? What about those suffering Israelite slaves? What about the evil that was done And God says, the greater good is that you see who I." Am. God wouldn't just soften Pharaoh and then walk away. God wouldn't just say, well, people, you slave 400 years. Now I just want you to forgive Pharaoh and peaceably leave Egypt. Oh. Just as Pharaoh had murdered the sons of Israel. So God says to Pharaoh, I will kill Your son. You killed my sons. I will take yours. Because God is a God of justice. And even a God of vengeance. The Bible doesn't say revenge is bad. The Bible says revenge is not for us. Revenge is something God executes. And here he threatens it on Pharaoh. If you refuse to let him go... I will kill your son. The God we serve is a confrontational deity. That's why he forced the issue with Pharaoh. That's why he sought a showdown with the king of Egypt. He insists on confronting sin and putting an end to it. Not necessarily in our time, but always in his time. So why won't he strike a peace accord with evil? Well, because we are his firstborn. Israel is my son, my firstborn. Then the ancient Near Eastern hierarchical pattern, a son is important, and even more important is the firstborn son. For God to say, you are my firstborn son, is to say, you have the highest rank in the birth order. You have the first place among my children. You, Israel, are my firstborn son. Virtually everyone is willing to leave what they have to their son. When God promises, when God calls us son, we know that he'll care for us. So God threatens vengeance on Pharaoh and says, you've harmed my son, I will take yours. But this goes beyond vengeance and foreshadows the gospel message that life for God's people can come only by the death of the son. God is not demanding from Pharaoh anything that God himself is not prepared to give. I will take and kill your son, Pharaoh? Yes. But the reason is ultimately because I'm willing to give up my own son. God took the life of Pharaoh's son so that Israel could go free and worship him. That's a foreshadowing of the greater exodus in which God accepted the life of his own son so that Israel could go free and worship him. If our religion is, at the end of the day, about human beings, this is very troubling. This claim about the death of the firstborn. Is God some kind of child abuser? No, that's not the point. The point is that he is heaven-bent on having a showdown with evil and defeating it. The way evil is defeated is through the death of the firstborn son. That's already present in this threat against Pharaoh's firstborn son. So, our text, the text at a first glance doesn't appear to be highly theological, has already talked about election, it's talked about the problem of evil, it's talked about the death of the firstborn, the truth of adoption, and it finishes up with these three very problematic verses lead commentators to say things like whoever wrote these verses here didn't even understand what they meant he just included them because that's how strange they are these verses teach us about the sacraments and the character of god the men who sought moses life are dead moses is on the way back to egypt he's stopped somewhere God comes and starts trying to kill him. Now, as the rabbis noticed long ago, the sign of the mercy of God lies in that phrase. God tried to kill him. God doesn't try to kill people. God succeeds instantaneously at anything God sets out to do. God trying to kill Moses is God warning Moses. God saying, Moses, something is seriously wrong in our relationship. Well, what's wrong in their relationship? Well, the only answer that the story presents is that Moses' son was not circumcised. Zipporah sees Moses in mortal distress, whips out a flint knife and circumcises her son, then applies the blood of the circumcision to his feet. Either Moses' feet or the son's feet, the text is not clear. What is this saying? Well, the last verse tells us that it relates to circumcision. That's why Zipporah did what she did and said what she said. She was talking about circumcision. Moses' life is threatened unless and until his son's foreskin is cut off. The text is picking up on the theme from the previous verse, verse 23, of the death of the firstborn, along with the themes from later on, chapters 11 through 13, about, once again, the firstborn sons, deliverance from death, that only those can be delivered from death who are circumcised. Moses somehow had neglected to circumcise his own children. Moses failed to apply the promises of God to his own family. God is reminding him, leaders in the church are not above the law. So you're a prophet, the greatest prophet of the old covenant era. That's great, Moses. Obey me. Circumcise your son or I will try to kill you. God is not mocked. Sin is sin in Egyptians or in Jews, in Christians or in anyone else. Sin deserves death. The point is that God's opposition to evil, his willingness to have the showdown with evil, doesn't stop at the borders of the covenant community. Well, I'll take on Pharaoh. I'll challenge Pharaoh. And I'll challenge you. God tries To kill Moses. He's just as willing to have a showdown with Moses as with Pharaoh. Just as ruthlessly clear that you will submit. Or you will be beaten into submission. Is this the God you know? The fearsome and terrifying God. If you insist on having your sin. He will give you to your sin. That's what God hardened Pharaoh's heart means. If you refuse to obey, he can and will take the life of the firstborn. In fact, he already has. Because of your sin and mine, he took the life of his firstborn. So, do you baptize your children? Do you applaud God's war against evil in the world? That's why God wanted Moses to circumcise his son. say, this one belongs to me. This one is part of the family of God. This is part of God's firstborn whom God will act to save by killing Pharaoh's firstborn. And ultimately by letting his own firstborn die. We can be complicit with evil by neglecting the sacraments. That's what this text tells us. To say, I don't need that. That's for others. God comes to Moses and says, Yes, you do need this. More than you can imagine. The point of these verses is to show us that Moses decided to obey God half heartedly. So God met him and tried to kill him until he started to obey God wholeheartedly. The text is asking us to renew our dedication to serve god not for money not for what's in it for us but because of the promise that through the death of god's firstborn we inherit all things and we claim that promise through baptism and the lord's supper moses for whatever real reason failed to claim that promise for his son Don't let that be you. Give yourself to Him in baptism. Do the same with your children. Embrace the death of the firstborn in your place. That's how you're delivered from slavery to sin. That's how you're freed to worship God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, The man who sought Moses' life were dead, and so you sought his life instead. Lord, don't let us underrate or underestimate the power of your anger. Help us to know that according to your wrath, that's how much we ought to fear you. Lord, don't let us neglect the sacraments that you have provided for us. Don't let us delay in our obedience. And require a rebuke from you. Father, don't give us over to our sin. Don't harden our hearts, we beg. Soften our hearts that we might stand with you against evil, against the evil in our own hearts. Lord, we praise you that you gave your firstborn son over to death so that we could live. Thank you for the scandal of the crucifixion. Help us to seek you, to desire you, to seek you in the means of grace, in word and sacrament, to be obedient to you, to take that rod of God in our hands and be faithful in the callings you've placed us in. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.